This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to a teaching from our series on the topic of worship. This teaching was recorded live at a time Messianic Fellowship. Alright, so uh, we're doing the final session of our series on worship today. Uh, this is... This is the last session of the series. We're going to talk about what it means to live a life of worship. So uh, my goal today is to try to wrap up some of the loose loose ends from previous sessions and talk about what it means to put all this into practice in our daily lives. And to start, I want to do a quick uh, overview, a quick review of what we've gone through of some of the things that we've learned on the subject of worship. At the beginning, we talked about how our goal in the series is to move toward a Messianic Torah theology of worship. I don't think it's possible to ever exhaust a topic like this, and uh, especially not in a short series like this. This has been just hitting on a couple points here and there, but... um, but I hope at least this helps us to think about um, important questions and what it means to to worship and how to do that together in unity. Worship isn't something you can subject to scientific inquiry. You can't put it in a test tube. You can't um, analyze its properties or things like that. It's 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 the natural outflow of an encounter with God. And the more we know God, the more we realize just how amazing he is and the more we long to offer ourselves completely to him. So one of the things we looked at is worship involves revelation and response, right? God reveals himself to us and we respond to that revelation. This means that God is always prior. God is first. He, we don't initiate worship. It's something we participate in but that god started right so god is always the one he he loved us first true worship is god focused not me focused right so worship is is all about god it's not primarily about me and what i get out of it it has to be first and foremost about him Uh, nonetheless when we come to god with this attitude we do get something out of it Right, so it's it's not um, there is there is a benefit to us as well, but that's not the the purpose. That's not the primary focus that we should have. Worship is both personal and corporate. Um, so, and the two have to align together. Right, we need both. We can't you can't have a corporate worship where everyone's personal worship is a mess, right? Where we are not serving God on a regular basis. Coming together as a community and offering praise to him, offering sacrifice, is meaningless if we don't have that life of service and submission to God. So we need, we need both. And at the same time, being off on our own without having uh, others uh, without being in connection with others is also we're missing something, right? There, there's going to be something uh, missing in our worship. So we need we need both the personal and the corporate. 
Okay. And then worship is both intentional and habitual. Does that make sense? So intentional in the sense that it's something that you do on, on occasion that you, that you put effort into that's like it's different from, from what you normally do, right? But it's also habitual in the sense that it's something that it's a habit. It's something you, you do as a matter of course. Your, your life is shaped to, to be worshipful, right? It's a repetition that shapes us to do the right thing without having to think about it. Uh, and so we talked a bit about the, pol- the power of positive repetitions, of habits, of liturgies, of you know, how these things shape us to crave and to hunger after the right things, right? So that that's, should be part of worship as well. True worship should engage our entire being. It should engage us on an intellectual level, on an emotional level, and it should satisfy a very deep hunger within our souls that transcends both thinking and feeling. Worship is not a feeling. We talked about this, how worship may involve feelings. It may involve very strong feelings. But if, if we make the mistake of equating those feelings with worship, we risk making worship all about us, right? Because then um, the litmus test for worship is me my own self and how I feel, right? And, and that can't be it. It has to be all about God. Worship is a posture, a habit, and a lifestyle of submission and service to God. All right, so these are some of the things we've, we've looked at. Um, before I go further, I want to follow up on the topic of corporate worship uh, from the last couple sessions. Uh, Last time, we talked about some things we need to keep in mind in crafting a corporate worship service. And I want to, like I said, I want to refrain from making blanket statements about how things have to be in a corporate worship service. In fact, one of the biggest things I tried to do was lower our level of anxiety about having to get it right, about finding the, the right, the single correct way of doing it according to Scripture, because the fact is there is no explicit instruction in Scripture about exactly how to order a worship service, exactly what should be included, and and things like that. But we do get some general recommendations, right? We get some some, um, indications in Scripture of what sorts of things we should do when we come together to to worship together. And so this list uh, we looked at already, we have in Scripture we see prayer, coming together for prayer, both liturgical and spontaneous prayer. We see that in scripture. Singing and music, including musical instruments. Scripture reading, a sermon or a teaching or exhortation or some sort of uh, um, explanation of, of the scripture, explaining God's revelation, clarifying that revelation, and edifying and encouraging one another. Right? These are all things that I think are are an important part of when we come together. And beyond this very general framework, I don't think we can be too dogmatic, right? Um, as long as, uh, you know, we're, we're doing, um, we're, we're incorporating these sorts of things into our worship, right? I don't think you can, you can say, well, well, this exact order is the correct one, the biblical one. That's not, 
that's that's not how it works. Um, so we get some general uh, some general instruction in scripture, but nothing too specific. But I I do think it is important for us to think about how our worship service conveys our core values as followers of Yeshua, right? Because everything in our service is going to convey something. There's going to be, it, it's it's sending some sort of message, right? Uh, the kinds of songs we sing, for example, the way we pray, the schedule of our scripture readings, how, how much scripture we read, uh, the overall structure of our gatherings, each of these conveys a message, right? And they, they say something about what we think is important as as followers of Yeshua. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we put much thought into what that message is? What, what is being conveyed through our service? What kind of theology is implicit behind our service structure? What do our services say about what we believe and what we think is important? How are our services forming and shaping us to be disciples of Yeshua? Um, there's no black and white answers to these questions, but these are things we need to ask ourselves now and then, and uh, it's helpful to keep that in mind. One example from what we, uh, we've talked about in this area is the role of Scripture reading in our services. Uh, if you compare the service structures of various forms of Christianity, you'll notice that most evangelical churches have very little place for God's word to be read out loud during the service. In, in fact, it's startling how little scripture you get in a lot of Bible-believing churches, right? And in contrast, some traditional uh, more liturgical services, even like Catholic Mass, uh, mainline Protestant churches, you see the reading of scripture plays a very important role in the structure of the service, right? And it's ironic that it's the churches whose doctrinal statement has a higher value for the Bible that tend to have the least amount of scripture, right? The churches that say that the Bible is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient, those churches that value the Bible more highly in their doctrinal statements tend to be the ones that have less of the Bible actually spoken or read in their services, I think I think that's unfortunate, right? That, that's and, and if we if we think if 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 the tr- we truly value the scriptures, then that should show in our services somehow, right? Like there, I think scripture reading ought to have a central place in our corporate worship service. Uh, that doesn't mean we need to have hours and hours of scripture reading each service, but I think I think it should have a central place, right? And this is something that, thankfully, a lot of Messianic congregations have recaptured, right? Um, we've realized the importance of having the Word of God read out loud. Um, and this is something that we see in the scriptures as well. So a uh, kind of related topic to this is the use of traditional Jewish liturgy. We, we talked a bit about um, the use of liturgy and, and some of the differences, you know, uh, with uh, traditional synagogue service, uh, modern Jewish synagogue service. And uh, there is much meaning and value in traditional synagogue liturgy, and we could spend a whole series just talking about that, just exploring how does a traditional synagogue service work, what, what are the different prayers, what do they mean, that sort of thing. But I, I do feel 
the, I don't think our service should just be a conventional Jewish service with a few token references to Yeshua added in. Right? The Sidur, the Jewish conventional Jewish Sidur prayer book, has been developing for almost 2,000 years in a certain direction, right? Um, and that direction is without Yeshua. And at the same time, Christian church services have developed, been developing for almost 2,000 years in a different direction, and that direction is without Torah. And as Messianic Torah believers, we're kind of in this no-man's land in between, right? And, and so what we, what we need is something where um, Yeshua is central, and his word, the totality of his word, is central. Right where both are there, uh, and and so I don't, yeah. How do you balance all that? There's no there's no single correct way to do that, right? There, there's going to be differences of of opinion, differences in taste, preference. Uh, some are going to prefer more Jewish liturgy, and and some are going to prefer less. Uh, and this goes back to how we need to show grace toward people who have different ways of doing things, right? So, so all that to say that, yeah, there is, there is uh, room for variety, but no matter what, I don't think we can compromise on keeping the main thing the main thing, of having Yeshua at the center of what we do and his word at the center of what we do. So, also, on a practical note, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that variety... And liturgy slash structure are not antithetical to each other. You, we can, you can have both, right? You can have you can have structure, you can have liturgy, and you can also have variety. Um, the the two two can work together. So the purpose of a liturgical structure is to provide a narrative spine, right? A framework for a service, and that doesn't mean the service has to look the same every week. You can change things up. Um, so so. That's just uh, something to keep in mind as well. Um, structure does not necessarily equal lack of variety, right? We can keep that in mind. Okay, so we've talked about what worship means on a corporate level in very, very broad terms. But what does it mean on an individual level? Right? How do we put into practice all this that we've learned about worship into our daily lives? I, I don't have a super profound answer here. And actually, I think the answer is quite simple. In fact, there's a song we sometimes sing with our kids that sums it up quite nicely. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And don't read your Bible, don't pray, and you'll shrink. Right? It's... it's it's uh, it's pretty simple, right? It, it's it's uh, it's simple, but it's one of those things we never graduate out of. It's not like, oh yeah, that was that was for for when I was a kid. Now now I'm past that. Now I don't have to do that anymore. You no, know, you never you never get to the point where you're beyond needing to read your Bible and pray, <laughs> right? So, and I, I I should speak for myself. Here. Sometimes I struggle to maintain the discipline, right? It's, all, it's easy for excuses to come up. It's easy to, you know, oh, the, you had a bad night. 
kids kept me up all night or or now I'm sick and uh, it's hard to get up early and um, or you're really busy if something unexpected changes your schedule and before you know it oops I forgot again and now a week has gone by and man I forgot all week and now you know it's it's so easy to let it slide right and it's so easy to come up with excuses really at its core like this is this is what it means to be a disciple of yeshua this is what it means to grow spiritually if we if we can't keep on on track of the simple things there's no point talking about more complex things right uh this is uh without a daily habit of worship this entire series is meaningless there's no point there's no point in talking about all this if we don't have, if we're not able to put it in practice in our daily lives. And the goal here is not to make us all feel guilty. I, I think this is something we always have room to grow in, and, and I hope that and I'm, spe- I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone else that, you know, this is something that um, we should, this is a challenge we should take on happily, cheerfully, and willingly, right? That we want to be those who are, are disciplined in spending time and worshiping God every day. So, uh, worship is a primary means by which we grow in our relationship with God. And in our daily lives, we're called to be more and more transformed into the image of Yeshua and our character to become more and more like him. That's our goal, right? And this is a lifelong process that never, what we're never going to attain here in this life, Right? Uh, but this is this is our trajectory. This is the goal we're headed towards: is becoming more like Yeshua. So, I think we can list what 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 goes on in in personal worship, prayer, and study of Scripture. I think are important. Shabbat and Moadim, uh, the the appointed times, right? We we have the, these cycles that God has given us. Uh, for worship and and this also relates to corporate worship right because because i think our corporate worship it has to be a part of our personal worship too that, that you you can't really separate them right cultivating god's presence in our daily work or in our daily life and submission and obedience i mean i mean all this is is really what it means to follow yeshua right this is this is our walk of faith and discipleship. Um, we're not going to look in detail at all of these, but I do want to pa- unpack some of these a little bit here. I want to talk about prayer. Uh, and obviously this is a big topic that we're not going to cover uh, very much in this short session, but but I want to just talk about what it means to have a disciplined life of prayer, um, how that works. In Scripture, we see references to times of prayer mentioned. And in, in Judaism, there are three daily times of prayer. There's the morning, afternoon, and evening prayer. Shacharit, Mincha, and Ma'ariv, right? There's There's... This this is a tradition, right? These these names and this this structure of daily times of prayer is is a Jewish tradition, 
But there, there is biblical, there's scriptural support for, for some of these times of prayer. I want to look at a couple of these passages. Uh, we'll look at Numbers 28, verse 2. And so in Numbers 28, it's describing the tamid offering, the daily perpetual offering that is given in the temple, right, or in the tabernacle. And it says, um, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. The word there is moed, right? It's the same word used of the festival. So there's an appointed time um, for these offerings, and it goes on to say that one will be in the morning and one will be literally between the evenings uh, in the Second Temple era. That was understood to mean mid-afternoon, right, between noon and sundown, between those, uh, those two segments of the day. So in in uh, in the torah we read about god's moedim we've got we've got the annual moedim like passover shavuot sukkot we've got the weekly moed the weekly appointed time of shabbat and we have the daily moedim these daily appointed times of the morning and evening sacrifice and while this passage doesn't say it explicitly by the time of Yeshua, it was common understanding that prayer and the sacrifices go hand in hand. So even though there's no temple today and we don't literally offer these sacrifices, there is still a pattern here for our daily times of prayer. Right? This gives us two of the three daily times of prayer. We've got morning and, and afternoon. The evening prayer time is inferred from other passages, although its connection with the temple is not as direct, right? Uh, later Jewish tradition would say it, it coincides with the burning of the, the ashes on the altar or, or something like that. But uh, the point is that we have at least two, two times uh, where we have this moed in the Torah, right? Uh, let's look at Psalm 141. Psalm 141, verse 2. It says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So here, the connection between sacrifice and prayer is made more explicit, right? Uh, and, and, and by the way, incense, the incense was offered at the same time as the morning and the evening, uh, morning and afternoon sacrifices, right? So, uh, so saying that my prayer is like incense, this is, this is coinciding with the sacrifices, right? So, so here there's a connection, right? Um, prayer is seen as, as related to, metaphorically, uh, sacrifice and incense. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, part of the Shema, we read, You shall speak of these words when you sit at home, when you walk on the way, when you lie down. And when you rise up. So this tells us that God's word should be on our lips and we should be talking about it all the time. Judaism came to interpret this to mean that we should recite this passage, the Shema, at certain times. When you lie down, that's the evening. And when you get up, that's the morning, right? So, so the Shema is recited as part of the morning prayers and part of the evening prayers. Not in the afternoon, but in the morning and in the evening. Um, Psalm 55, verse 17. 
says, Evening, morning, and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Right? So there's this idea of coming to God three times a day, evening, morning, and um, later Judaism added the word after to make it afternoon, right? Evening, morning, and afternoon. There you've got your three times of prayer, evening, morning, and afternoon. Um, literally, it's evening, morning, and noon, but you know, as, as this developed in Jewish tradition, this was referring to, seen as referring to afternoon. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. In Daniel 6, it talks about Daniel's prayer life, and he got in trouble for that prayer life, right? Uh, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this, this, this evil decree saying that anyone who prays to any god except King Darius will be thrown to the lion's den, what did he do? He went to his house where he had his windows open in, in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So this tells us it was Daniel's custom to pray facing Jerusalem three times a day. Um, Daniel 9.21. It talks about how, well, well, Daniel says, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So this suggests that it suggests that one of Daniel's daily times of prayer coincided with the evening or, or afternoon sacrifice, right? So that maybe there's a connection between the times Daniel's praying and, and the times of the sacrifice in the temple. Luke chapter 1, verse 10. Luke one ten says, and the whole, so this is when uh, Zechariah was priest. I'll start in verse 8. While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Remember, this takes place at the same time that they're slaughtering the morning or evening or, or afternoon sacrifice, right? And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So we see that by the time of Zechariah, this was common practice, that prayer was, the time of prayer was the time of the sacrifice. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we read about, about the apostles observing these times as well, right? It says that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This would have been like around 3 p.m., mid-afternoon. So this was the time of the afternoon, uh, afternoon sacrifice. Okay, so we've got, um, in, in Jewish tradition, the times of prayer are shacharit, which is morning. Um, and, and in its broadest um, sense, this can take place any time between sunrise and noon. Preferably the first half of that period, but uh, it's regarded traditionally as any time between sunrise and noon, if, you know, is... Is, is permissible. And then mincha is any time between noon and sunset. And again, preferably in the last half of that, that time period. And then ma'ariv is any time between sunset and bedtime. So this is, this is the way it's structured in Jewish tradition, right? And keep in mind, in Jewish tradition, these times are not obligatory for women. So 
the, the reason is because women are often the ones busy with children or household responsibilities. Um, think of nursing mothers, right? You're not always able to stop at a specific time each day to pray. So in, in Judaism, women are still supposed to pray, and they may certainly pray at the set times if they're able to, but they have more flexibility when it comes to timing, right? It's not as strict for them. So I do want to clarify that none of this is a commandment. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, thou shalt pray three times a day at these times. There's no, nowhere in Scripture that says to pray at the time of the morning and the afternoon sacrifice or anything like that. It's, it's tradition. It's tradition with a biblical basis, right? We see little hints and little references to it here and there. We see biblical characters that seem to follow something similar to this, right? Uh, but it's not presented as a commandment. And I want to give that disclaimer because I don't want us to think that it's all or nothing. Because one of the tactics that the enemy uses to keep us from praying is to make us think that if I can't do the whole shebang, there's no point doing anything. And it would be way better for me to be able to spend only five or ten minutes once a day in prayer and be consistent about it than to have this elaborate plan of spending hours at each of the times of prayer and not be able to maintain it, right? So um, my take on this is if it's helpful, great. Uh, if, if it's not helping, like do what you can, right? Uh, this is the point behind all this for our purposes here is that we see a pattern in scripture of daily prayer, right? This is something that's, that's important. It's something that I think, uh, has, you know, praying every day is, is biblical. (laughs) Even if it's not, even if there's no specific commandment that says thou shalt pray every day, I, I, I think there's enough evidence in scripture to say it's a good idea. It's a good idea for us to be, to be doing that, right? Um, it doesn't say how to do it. It doesn't say anywhere in scripture to use a siddur, a prayer book. Some people find it helpful to use a siddur during their times of prayer. Others, quite frankly, would find that stifling. If you're the kind of person that finds that sort of structure helpful, that's, that's great, I mean, by all means. If not, you know, again, like, don't let that hold you back. Don't let that bog you down. In either case, it's important to pray from your heart with intent and with meaning. I, I, I'm going to, and I, I don't want to be stepping on toes with this here, but the same is true regarding talit and tefillin. Uh, there's nowhere in scripture that commands us to pray with talit and tefillin. A talit, by the way, is, is a Hebrew word that just means a cloak. So at the time of Yeshua, this was your, your coat that you would wear, your mantle, right? Um, you, you'd have a tunic on underneath, and over top you would wear a cloak. And there would be four, four, uh, t- four corners. And so according to Torah, you're commanded to attach tzitzit to those four corners. This was not a ritual garment. This was not a prayer shawl. The idea of a prayer shawl came much, much later in the Middle Ages. 
At the time of Yeshua, talits were not used for prayer shawls. They were used to keep warm as your coat, right? This was your outer garment. And, and so there's nothing wrong with wearing a talit for prayer. I, I think it can be very meaningful. Um, but it's not a commandment, right? And the same thing with, with tefillin. When it says in the Shema to bind them for a sign on our hand and on our forehead, um, I think the plain meaning of that is metaphorical. We're supposed to be immersed in God's word no matter what. Um, taking that hyper-literally and saying, I'm actually going to wrap God's word on my hand and on my forehead, I think is great and can be really meaningful. It's like a, a physical sign of a spiritual truth, right? This is what I'm wanting to do with God's word, and, and um, this is a symbolic way of enacting it. But there's nowhere in Scripture that says to do that while you pray, right? This is, this is a tradition, and like all traditions— it can be helpful, and some people find it meaningful. But we can't get distracted by that and miss the real point of actually having God's word on our hearts and constantly on our minds and, and talking about it when we sit down and when we rise up, right? Not just reciting the Shema, but actually talking about God's word with our children, with, with our families, with our friends. Um, that's, what, that's what the the primary meaning is. So, all that to say, Scripture doesn't give us a checklist of what exactly our prayer life is supposed to look like. But it does give us little hints and patterns of we, that, that it's important, right? It's important to, to have this time of prayer. I do want to look briefly before we leave the topic of prayer though at what Yeshua did and what Yeshua had to say about our prayer lives so we have Matthew 6 verse 6 Yeshua says uh, well I'll start in verse 5 when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others truly I say to you that they have received their reward so the idea is we're not supposed to make a show of it uh, we're not supposed to go around bragging, I have such a great prayer life, I'm so disciplined, <laughs> right? That he's, Yeshua says, you got your reward. You know, the, the attention you get from other people for that, that's all the reward you're going to get for, for praying like that, for being ostentatious about it. Instead, Yeshua says, verse 6, when you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the point is that this ha- having this discipline and having it so that only God is the one who knows what our discipline is, um, God will reward us for that. That's, I'd way rather have that as a reward than someone say, oh, good for you, Ben. Right? Like, <laughs> that means nothing compared to the reward that comes from God. Okay, uh, so that's, that's what Yeshua, one of the things Yeshua says about prayer. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, says that Yeshua rose, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. We read that sort of phrase often in the Gospels, that Yeshua 
Yeshua went out. Uh, here, here's another one. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. It says, But he would withdraw to desolate, place, desolate places and pray. The Greek verb there is in the imperfect tense. This means this is something he would habitually do. This is something he would often or frequently do. He would frequently withdraw to desolate places and pray. Right? So, so what Yeshua taught his disciples to do, he practiced. He would go by himself uh, to places where people, other people couldn't see him, right? Uh, so we read about going, praying in seclusion indoors, praying in seclusion outdoors, and, and throughout the Gospels. This is something that we see Yeshua doing, him praying through the night or getting up while it's still night and praying. And, and uh, um, in other words, Yeshua didn't just pray at the times of prayer. Right? So Yeshua was not bound by this, this uh, Shachrit, Mincha, and Ma'ariv structure. Right? It doesn't say maybe he followed that and then this was in addition to that. Uh, that. I think that's quite likely. The text isn't clear on that. But the point is that those are not the only times you can pray. Right? Yeshua's prayer life was much bigger than that. And and this type of prayer, going out into secluded places or going inside to secluded places, right? That, you know, think about what that means in our modern age where everyone has a cell phone, a smart device. Everyone has emails chiming as they come in. Everyone's got this and that. And, like, can you ever get so you're by yourself these days? with all this technology. It's, it's like lonely places are almost extinct, I feel like, because of how invasive media is these days. We're surrounded by information bombarding us. We're surrounded by communication. We're surrounded by these holograms of people all around us through our phones, through our tablets, through our TVs, through whatever. And... Sometimes I think we need to get away from all that. And I think that's the example Yeshua gives of going out to lonely places is, is an example that we need to try to implement in our lives. It's, uh, I, I'll admit, I, I struggle with being addicted to my phone. Right? It's... it's Without even thinking, I'll, I'll grab it and, and look at it just to see, oh, did anyone message me? Or, or, right? Like it, I'm not even conscious of it. I, I just do it automatically. I wake up in the morning, and, and my instinct is to grab my phone. <laughs> and it, it, it horrifies me when I think about that and realize what it's doing to me. So this is, this is something I think we need to, uh, something I need to work on. <laughs> Okay, let's talk a bit about study, scripture reading. Um, in many Christian circles, it's foreign to think of study as a form of worship. This is a, this is a concept that's very prominent in Judaism. Study is a form of worship, but um, it's, not, it's not intuitive for people from, say, an evangelical Christian background. 
Yet throughout the Psalms, we hear talk of studying God's word, meditating on it, internalizing it, right? Take Psalm 119, for example. The whole Psalm is, is talking about how amazing God's word is, and I'm hiding it in my heart. I'm meditating on it. It's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It's all these things, right? And so, so studying God's word uh, is, is part of what it means to worship, right? There's a difference we could make between a, what we might call a devotional reading of Scripture and an exegetical reading of Scripture. So a devotional reading, I'm going to oversimplify this, but a devotional reading is where you open a passage and you think, what is God saying to me here? So you, you kind of, you, you don't focus on the context, you don't focus on maybe what it would have meant to the original audience, you focus on, you know, are, are these words saying something to me? An exegetical reading is where um, you maybe, you look at the context. What, what's, what's, what's this passage talking about? Who is it talking to? What was the message? What would the original audience have thought when they heard this? What did the, the, the person who wrote that um, say it's a psalm written by David. What did David mean when he said that? Say it's a letter by Paul. What did Paul mean when he said that? Um, and put it in context and things like that and try and, try and think what is the meaning that, that this has. And then, then applying it to my life would be a secondary step, right? These are two different approaches. And I want to suggest that both are important. Um, sometimes it's important to dig deeper and say, what, what, is, what did this actually mean to its original audience? And sometimes if we do that and never actually say, okay, what is, what is God saying to me? We miss the point. On the flip side, if all we do is dive into trying to use the scripture as, as like one of those magic eight balls, you know, I, I need to make a decision. So I'm going to play Bible roulette, flip open a passage, and, oh, it says um, such and such, therefore I'm going to make this decision. Like that, I think that's like the opposite danger, right? Where we completely uh, eliminate what, what the... What, the Bible actually means and just focus on deriving some meaning for myself. So somehow we need both. Somehow we, we need to be willing to be diligent students and understanding what the scripture is actually saying, what it actually means, but also through God's help, through his Holy Spirit, understanding what is God saying to me, therefore. The Bible says this, therefore, what should I do? Right? That there has to be that application as well. So there's times when um, sometimes it helps to sit down and read through an entire book of the Bible at once. Uh, it's hard with longer books, obviously, but uh, especially with some of the shorter letters or things like that. Uh, with If you know, I, I've had this, I've had times where, you know, whatever it is, my reading plan or, or whatever, I, I get little snippets. And then the next day I read the next snippet, and the next day I read the next snippet. Um, and that's okay. If you can be disciplined, like sometimes that, that's helpful. 
sometimes it's helpful also to break with that pattern and be like, I'm going to read, I'm going to just set aside some time to read through the entire book of Matthew, for example, in one sitting. And, and sometimes you see things you don't otherwise by doing that. Sometimes it's helpful to pick a passage that, that is meaningful to you and review it over and over again for, say, a month. Read it every day for a month. And, and that, that repetition is not a bad thing. You start to internalize it. You start to memorize it. You start to um, it, allow it to shape you, right? So there's different things like this. There, uh, the Bible, uh, like I said, in the Psalms, we read about meditating on God's word, about reading God's word, about hiding God's word in our heart, but it doesn't give us an outline of this is exactly how to do it, right? Uh, so there's, there's some, some variety here, and I think uh, it, our study can't ever be just about amassing information. It has to be about allowing our lives to be transformed. I want to talk very briefly about Sabbath, about Shabbat as a form of worship, and then we'll conclude. So we've talked a little bit about this, this idea that that repetition and cycles and structures can be helpful in shaping us, and I think that's true of all the biblical feasts, um, but the feast that we encounter most often is Shabbat, right? Every week it comes around. And, and, and yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> There's, I think Shabbat has something to teach us about what it means to worship. Um, beyond just the fact that we gather together and have corporate worship, there's also, um, what does it mean to stop and rest and, and rejoice and to feast to celebrate and to cease. Shabbat uh, in Hebrew, the verb, the, the word shavat is a verb. It means to cease, to stop, to stop doing something, right? Um, and so shabbat is the noun form of that verb. It means stopping, right? Every week we have a stopping. Maybe maybe that's that's a more literal way of saying it, right? It's, it's our stopping time. So, you know, think about, think about what that means. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see uh, in, we have the creation story, right? And in our Bibles, the way the, 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 the verses are divided up in our English Bibles, we begin a new chapter, chapter 2, right after the sixth day is done. So on the sixth day, you'll remember, God created the, the land animals and culminates in the creation of man. God blesses humans, gives them a mission, a mandate, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then God saw that it was good. And then chapter break, which gives the false impression that there's, there's like this, this story is kind of done there. Right? Or, or at least this part of the story is done, and now we're starting something new, and then we get to the heavens and the earth were done, and God rested on the seventh day. The problem with that is it makes God's commission to humans as the climax of creation. Go out and work. That's the climax. And then Sabbath is like an add-on. 
And that's not the way it is. The Sabbath is the climax of creation, right? What happens when human work is the climax is we end up with this humanistic, production-oriented view of creation. Instead, the wholeness of creation is summed up in the Sabbath, which makes the climax about holiness, rest, and accepting God's gracious gift rather than feeling like it's up to us to do everything. So, the message of Shabbat is that human striving is not ultimate. Our, the, the work that we do, the, the effort we put in, that's not the climax, right? And by the way, how do we define work? We have this Hebrew word, malacha. We're commanded, you know, six days to perform malacha, avodah, malacha. Um, and on the seventh day, to cease, to rest. So, I, to me, it makes sense. Malacha, malacha is used in connection with God's work of creation. It's used in connection with the tabernacle, right? So, the point is not how strenuous the activity is. The point is that this is activity that's producing something right? Uh, which is a bit different than the English word work. When we think of work, we think, well, you know, working up a sweat, doing heavy labor kind of thing, but uh, that's not the point of the word malacha in Hebrew. The point, rather, is focused on, uh, on trying to produce something. So I think, I think it's better to see Shabbat more so than saying, oh, it's a day to relax. It's a day to kick up our heels and not, not get our hands dirty. More than that, it's a day to cease this striving to be productive. It's a day to set aside this, this God-given nature that we have to, to go out and get stuff done, to, be, to, to accomplish something, Right? God's, I mean, God gave us that desire to, to accomplish things. And Shabbat is a reminder that that's, that's not ultimate. That striving to be productive, to be accomplishing, to get stuff done, that's not, that's not the ultimate. So here are just a couple messages that I think Shabbat teaches us. Shabbat helps us to see that our own efforts are insufficient, but that God provides anyway, right? Even we can go through a whole day of not getting anything done and we still have our needs met. And that's, that tells us that we serve a gracious God. It helps us to acknowledge the limitations of time and God's ownership of our time. Of course, it refreshes us. It relieves stress, revives us. <laughs> It also puts us in a rhythm, a cycle of growth, right? And it teaches us that we are value, valued not primarily for what we produce or for what we get done, right? God values us as his creation. Okay. Let's conclude. I just want to uh, read this 
this uh, passage from Jeremiah chapter 9 in closing. Jeremiah 9, um, starting in verse 23, says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. So the point, uh, you know, the point of this passage is not to say that you should go around bragging that you know God. It's like that's, that's, that's not what it's saying. I think in English maybe the word boast has kind of the wrong connotation here. The point is, like, what are you taking strength in? What are you rejoicing in? What are you... Um, I, proud of uh, is, is maybe not even the the best way to put it, but but in the sense of like, this is what I want to do with my life, and I feel satisfied doing that. Right? What is it that you want to be known for? I guess is another way of saying it. Do you want to be known for being being strong, for being for having lots of wisdom, or do you be or do you want to be known? As someone who knows God. Someone who knows him. What does that mean to know God? How, how can we as humans know God? Knowing God in scripture means relationship. Right? To grow in the knowledge of God means to grow in our relationship with him. This is intensely personal. It, you know, it, it's it's something we do together as a community, but it's also something that we do as individuals, right? In in uh, several passages in Scripture, Second Chronicles twenty verse seven, Isaiah forty one eight, James two verse twenty three, talks about how Abraham was God's friend. Have you ever thought about what that means to be called a friend of God, and is that possible? to get to that point of knowing God so well that you're known as a friend of God. And I think this is something that we should all be striving for, that we should all, that we should all long for, is to know God more deeply. And that's, that's really what worship is all about. This is what, what our goal needs to be, is to grow in our relationship with him. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us, and that you've given us the grace to be able to respond to you in worship. I ask that you would draw each of our hearts closer to you and that we would come to know you more deeply. Help us, Father, to be, uh, to be able to maintain uh, lives of discipline to be able to set aside time each day to spend with you and to use that time in a way that is profitable and in a way that you are glorified. I ask, Father, that each of us would come to be uh, more conformed to the image of Yeshua, 
and that you would be exalted through, our, through us, through our lives. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.